Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Let's have a Father's Day message today from Hebrews chapter 12. We've been in the middle of a series entitled Dealing with Feelings. Talking about what, what does it look like to have your emotions get out of control. You ever had your emotions get out of control? I've said this multiple times, almost everywhere I have ever been where I've made a mistake or I've made a decision that I later regretted or something came out of my mouth that I really wish I could just reel back in, in almost every situation I could trace that back to a singular root and that was allowing my emotions and my feelings to get out of control. And we've talked about stress, we've talked about depression. Well today, we're going to talk about what I would call one of the more reactionary emotions. We're going to talk about Bitterness. Bitterness gets set in your heart. Bitterness is a root within your soul. And it sometimes comes as a result of a person, someone who's harmed you, someone who's abused you, someone who didn't do what they said they were going to do. Uh, we need to pray today, even as we, many of us are blessed to be able to celebrate Father's Day to, and to be able to recognize that even for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Covenant, Father's Day is not a good day for everybody. When you think about your biological father, good things don't come to mind. Sometimes it's because he was absent. Sometimes it is because he was abusive. But for any number of reasons, you've got what is called a father wound. And that it just the very essence of Father's Day is something that could trigger bitterness within your soul. Sometimes it's another person who harmed you, who abused you. I also want to say something else at the outset here. When I talk about forgiveness, and I'm going to talk about forgiveness today because the Lord commands us to forgive, I want anybody, particularly those who've been victims of abuse, to hear me well. Forgiveness of that person is not in any way mutually exclusive from seeking justice for what was done to you. So when we talk about how to deal with those internal things like bitterness, that's for you. That's to keep you from going down a track that's going to be very unhealthy and, and potentially spiritually and otherwise deadly for you. But if you have been abused, you should report that. You should come to individuals like me or one of our other pastors, and you should expect in that moment your church family to stand behind you and to advocate for you. You should expect others in authority in other spheres to stand with you. So I want to be abundantly clear right at the start. Do not take anything I say over the next 30 minutes or so as this trite sort of, well, just forgive and move on. Do hear me saying this. If you've been the victim of abuse, I don't want you to allow the emotion of bitterness to further steal and destroy what has already been stolen and destroyed. Sometimes bitterness comes in reaction to a person. Sometimes it comes in reaction to a circumstance. There's a job that's been lost. There's financial difficulty. There's sickness. There's family trouble. We look at what the havoc that has been wreaked by COVID-19. We see systemic injustices we did several weeks ago. And for many in our minority community, that's a trigger potentially for bitterness to automatically assume the worst about somebody who wears a badge, anybody who wears a badge, really. 
Others of us see lawless rioting and destruction and anarchy, and it causes a, a, a potential to, to trigger bitterness where we, we refuse to recognize that there actually are unjust systems that, that contribute to all of the things that we're experiencing. In fact, I may be talking to people right now that for years you've been a slave to bitterness. It absolutely controls you, and you might have even devolved to a point that you're now bitter against God himself because bitterness is just that. It's a feeling that, that someone has done you wrong or that life has been unfair or that you hold on to, to, to something that you really need to let go of. Someone well-defined bitterness in this way, it is harbored hurt, hurt that's legitimate hurt sometimes, that's, that I intentionally harbor and I hide it deeply in my heart. And every single one of us has felt that way at one time or another. I've been there. A couple of decades ago, we moved from Kentucky, where we'd been ministering, and prior to that, attending seminary for many years, and we went back to my home state to do a couple of things. I was honored to be able to take a faculty position at a Christian university teaching evangelism, and we also began to plant a church, uh, a church that just taught me so much, really taught me more probably than I taught those folks. But in the middle of, of that kind of environment, I had a lot of conversations, as you can imagine, with other local churches, with denominational leaders who were supposedly going to be helping us in that process. And, and I'm not just talking about money, just prayer and moral support and all the things you need when you're starting a church. Without going into all the details, I'll just tell you, they, some of those people were very suspicious of us. Starting new churches is a really popular thing today. It's almost a trendy thing to the point of being unhealthy. It was the exact opposite 20 years ago. Church planting was the thing you did if you couldn't get a real church. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way that the seminaries looked at it. And so there was some suspicion about who we were. There was suspicion about our methodology. Uh, this is, again, in, in the Deep South. Many of you can see kind of how I'm dressed now. I actually had one gentleman look at me and go, how will you expect people to dress? And this was his... Um, this, this was his rationale. When you go to the courthouse and stand before a judge, you don't do that wearing shorts and flip-flops. You show him respect. So how will you tell those that you reach for Christ to dress when they visit the house of the Most High God? I think, I think, I get where he's going with that, but I think what he missed is that the Lord God Almighty, according to Psalm 104, clothes himself with light in such uh, an extent that no one can bear to even look at his face. I'm guessing that God is not the least bit impressed with your Armani suit, which is kind of what I said. But I was 29 years old, and I wasn't as eloquent, and I was also a little edgy. So this is the way I really answered the question. I said, well, given the fact that Scripture only prescribes modesty and really nothing else, I'm going to tell him not to show up naked. That's what I'm going to say. He didn't like that answer. Now, there was a lot of that kind of stuff, right? I mean, I could go deeper, but there was a lot of that. And so what began as sort of a back and forth, okay, agree, disagree, whatever, now all of a sudden it started to go underground. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your family or maybe in a, another church. The, and especially at that local associational level. I remember coming home and I looked at my wife. This is not one of my more godly moments, so I'm just going to warn you in advance. I looked at her. And I said, hell will freeze over before I'll ever have anything else to do with another Baptist association. Five years after that, I became the executive director of a Baptist 
association. Be careful what you tell God you will not do. That's all I'm saying. But what do you, th what do you think I was feeling at that moment? Exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about right here. Bitterness. And I had reason to feel offended. I had reason to be hurt. The denomination at state and national levels, men that I had walked with for a number of years, started receiving phone calls about me, trying to keep the connections and support from happening. About a year into it, I sat in an office with my dean, discovering that a, a number of anonymous, concerned people were trying to get me removed from a faculty role at that local university. And what hurt the most was that some of the same people involved we got to remember, this is my hometown, where some of the same people that I had known for years, some of them watched me grow up, now just saying horrible things about me. Now, here's where my problem started. Now, up until this point, it's their problem, okay? Not mine. Here's where my problem started. I nursed it. You ever been there? I got angry. Anger turned to bitterness. And for about six months, I, I mean, I fed that thing like a gremlin. And just like a gremlin, it grew and it multiplied. Everywhere I went and saw some, one of those people, everywhere I went and I had a circumstance or an experience that reminded me of what had happened to me, I would go right back there until one night, my lovely wife, in tears, confronted me and she said sweetheart I love you I committed when I married you I would follow you as long as you follow Jesus God is never going to give fruit to what we're doing here until you let this go and start concentrating on what he has brought you here to do she was absolutely right and as I look back you know what I know exactly how right she was we never saw any tangible evidence of God's blessing until I dealt with my bitterness. Now, why do I share that story with you on Father's Day of all times? I do it because I'm afraid this problem is far more deeply ingrained in the church as a whole than many would like to admit. I'm going to warn you, if you're one of those bitter people, if you're nursing like I did many years ago and enabling that emotion, it will end up taking your life from you. If it doesn't do it physically, then the only existence you're going to have is a miserable one right before you die. Because ultimately, there's only one way to deal with bitterness. And we read it in these uh, verses that Pastor Nelson read for us at the outset of our time together. The, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Have you noticed how the, the striving of peace is connected almost intricately with this idea of holiness? Notice what he says next. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. You see that? There are two things that are diametrically opposed to each other, the grace of God and the root of bitterness. You're going to have to pick one of those to occupy your soul because they ain't going to both stay there. You're going to have to pick one. And that by, that by it, many, he goes on to say, become defiled. This passage can save your life. In fact, I believe this passage can save entire churches. But when it comes to your soul and mine, there's three ways to fight this issue of bitterness. And the first way is to deal with the source. Understand where this comes from. Not the multiple places where it can be triggered, 
but the multiple ways in which you and I can nurse it, which we can feed that thing. He says, see to it, in verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. What he's describing here when he describes bitterness is something that, that lies beneath the surface. Most of the time, it's invisible. There's a lady that I went to high school with, vivacious, lively, happy, just a joy to be around. She was a counselor there in our hometown, uh, and for years, apparently, cancer had been eating away at her entire body, and she had no idea because she felt fine. And I've, I've actually heard that from individuals who've recently been diagnosed with cancer, and you, you typically say, what, how do you feel? And what do they, they go, well, you know, the weirdest thing is I feel fine. But it really did, it, it was not congruent with what was going on underneath the surface because she was diagnosed with stage four and it had metastasized, meaning it had spread to multiple parts of her body in less than six weeks after that diagnosis with, with what appeared on the outside to be a very healthy woman. She was gone. That's what bitterness will do to you. You might be able to hide a lot of this on the outside, but on the inside, it is going to absolutely eat away at you. You may finally come out like being cranky or listless. Sometimes it's just because you didn't get a good night's sleep. Sometimes it's because you're making too much of something. But sometimes that crankiness, that listlessness comes from the fact that something has deeply hurt you and you have allowed it to take root. And so the first step is to find where that thing has been planted in your heart. Because let me tell you something about bitterness. It takes very little soil to get it to start growing, but it'll grow very quickly. The longer it grows, by the way, some of you got a plant like this in your yard and you know what, what this is like. The longer it's allowed to grow, the more difficult it is to remove. You put that thing in the ground, some of you are better than me, you'll know the names of some of these plants. I don't, so I'm not going to pretend I do. It, it's a plant that you put in there, like, let's say like a Leland pine tree, for example. I know that they happen to grow really quickly. They're a lot easier to plant than they are to dig up, especially that root. There's a lot of plants like that. Bitterness, the Bible tells us, is exactly the same way. And so we need to discover, why is it that we plant such a thing in our hearts? Well, it's usually for one of two reasons. It's either something somebody did to us, or it's something somebody said about us. That would cover the majority of cases, wouldn't you think? And isn't it interesting that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, when we get to late fall, we're going to move through the earlier part of that sermon called the Beatitudes. We're going to learn what it really means to be blessed. Listen to what he says uh, in that section of the Sermon on the Mount regarding what we should do in response when someone lies about us, when someone slanders us. What should I have done? 20 years ago, rather than nursing that thing and feeding it like a gremlin. Well, Jesus says in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile. You know what blessed means, by the way? It doesn't mean happy. It, it doesn't mean content. It doesn't mean prosperous. It means one who bears the blessing of God, one who carries the approval of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. Now notice this. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When this kind of thing happens to you, 
If you've not contributed to the problem, if you have been faithful, if you've done what you can to try to make things right and the situation is still unresolved, Jesus says, here's how you respond. Congratulations, you are in great company. They did it to the prophets, they did it to me, and a servant is not above his master. Well, what if they've done you wrong? What if what they did tangibly affected you? They betrayed you. They, they cheated you. Fast forward to verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, James Tillis was an Oklahoma boxer, and he became a preacher. And as he got up to preach one day, there was a heckler that came up and smacked him. I mean hard, right across the right cheek. And then right in front of everybody, he said, Preacher, you know what the Bible says about turning the other cheek. And so James Tillis turned the other cheek and let the man slap him really hard on the other cheek, at which point James Tillis started to roll his sleeves up. And he says, Well, the Lord hadn't given me any further instructions. Sometimes, right, this is not a passage that, that allows you to be bullied perpetually or says that you ought to constantly be a doormat. In fact, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as an Old Testament principle still stands when it comes to society at large. The issue was let the punishment fit the crime. But what had happened by the time of the Sermon on the Mount is that many people had taken that civil code and tried to insert it in a way that justified personal revenge vigilantism. And Jesus says that's, that kind of thing, that kind of reaction is not going to do anything but grow and multiply the bitterness in your heart, and then it will begin to affect everybody else. So here's the overarching principle. God does not judge you or me based on what happens to us. God can. God will judge us based on how we react, based on how we respond. All right. Some of you going back to celebrate recovery on Tuesday night, maybe you haven't responded in the best way to some things that have happened the last three months, some of which may have been legitimate. The whole purpose of CR is to teach you how to respond in a way that honors the Lord. And you will honor yourself in that as well because you won't allow this unhealthy bitterness to well up inside you. You can't control your circumstances. You cannot control the actions of other people. But you can, and you are commanded, and I am commanded by Jesus to control our reaction. And so whatever thing has happened to you, whatever person has done you wrong, that's the root. Ferret that out. Determine what that's going to be. Because how you respond that to that determines whether you continue to allow that person to control you. Have you ever heard that phrase? You're letting somebody live rent-free in your head? Some people are imprisoned to bitterness. So, determine the source of your bitterness, and secondly, determine the course of your bitterness. And once you've identified what it is, this is going to be your greatest temptation. That person, that circumstance, now I'm focused on it. And the temptation now will be to focus and to direct my focus in essentially the same way that I have before, which means the bitterness is just going to increase. My number one weapon against that is to determine the course. In other words, for me to be warned about where this is going to lead my heart and soul if I continue to allow it to take root. This is why he says in verse 15, it springs up and causes trouble. So that's the first thing it does. And then it, it defiles many. 
You see that? By many, it becomes defiled. So it springs up, causes trouble in your own soul, then it affects everybody around you, even the people you're not bitter against. You know, when I graduated seminary over 20 years ago, nobody on that campus ever told me that I was going to have to become an epidemiologist if I was going to be a faithful pastor. Nobody told me that. There are things seminary can't teach you, but there are things that life can teach you that actually apply to a lot of the things that the Bible teaches. And and I think this COVID epidemic is really an excellent illustration uh, when it comes to the subject of bitterness. Epidemiology, as it relates to COVID, has taught me something that illustrates well what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Because we know at this point, about four months into this, the real danger of this virus is not infection by itself. In fact, we've said that from the beginning. Some of you may need to understand that. Maybe you've forgotten that. You've been hiding out because you're just waiting um, for, for some zero chance of you catching anything before you get out of your home. Listen, if you're in a vulnerable population, take care of yourself. But from the beginning, everybody who knows anything about this has told us we can't keep people from getting sick. We can't stop it. What we can do is mitigate against it because the twofold danger of COVID-19 is not that you or I could get sick from it. Look, if, if, if it was just about me getting sick, I got to tell you, I mean, y'all can call me stupid and you might be right. I'm one of these people who just likes to lean into it. Like, let me just go ahead. My wife just can't, she's just like, oh, I can't believe he said that or he's thinking that way. But there is, there's a time that I like, let's just push it on. Just bring me a doorknob. Let me lick it. Let's get this over with. Okay? Why do I not do that? Y'all laughed at that just a little bit too much. Why do I not do that? Because I'm pastor to hundreds of people that I come in contact with, and the risk is not just whether Joel gets sick, it's whether Joel contributes to a spread. So the, 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 the danger here is twofold. Number one, vulnerable populations of people, and we have them here. And number two, the spread, that R-naught rate that Dr. Marsh, our our COVID czar here in West Virginia, has told us about. And so the spread, and if you don't believe this thing spreads quickly, let me give you just a few statistics. The first recorded case of this virus in the United States was January the 20th. First recorded case. I think it was in Oregon or Washington State. Six days later, there were two more cases. So you now have three cases in six days among a population of 328 million people. Yeah, I was doing the same thing most of y'all were doing, right? Three out of 328 million. By February 5th, there were 12 cases. By February 29th, we had our first death. By March 8th, we'd gone to 22 deaths. Still just barely negligible when you concern when you think about the, the number of people who die every day, the, 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 all of that kind of thing. By March 12th, less than eight weeks into this, we'd gone from two cases to 1,500. Two days later, we'd gone from 1,500 to 2,700. Three days after that, we'd gone from 2,700 to 5,400. Three days after that, we'd gone from 5,400. Are you ready for this? Buckle up to 19,000. 285. By March the 31st, we had 164,000 cases of COVID-19 and 3,200 dead. And as I stand in front of you today, we have 2.2 million cases and 120,000 fatalities. Remember what I said earlier about not getting COVID fatigue and let's take this seriously? This is the reason why. In five months, the real danger It wasn't just an infection. The real danger 
was the rate of spread. That's why we went home. That's why this building sat empty for several weeks. That's why we're masked even now while we're singing. That's why when you walk in here, the place smells like a hospital. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, because the author of Hebrews just described bitterness in exactly the same way. Where I grew up, upstate South Carolina, there was this plant that had been imported into the United States after World War II to help with erosion in certain parts of our landscape in the South. It was called kudzu. Anybody know what kudzu is? You ever seen kudzu? If you've never seen kudzu, it is the only plant that will exist in hell. That's kudzu. Uh, you plant this stuff, and it, yeah, it'll take care of erosion. It'll also take care of everything else. If it starts growing around your house and you don't figure out how to deal with it, it will eat your house. I'm not exaggerating. It will eat your house in a matter of weeks. And, and here's the other thing. It's a lot tougher to try to figure out how to deal with this thing. I have seen landscape crews set this stuff on fire and it comes back. That's what bitterness will do. It'll raise within your soul a kind of trouble that will rapidly spread, and it'll defile many. You do not want to be patient zero for bitterness. You don't want to be that person. Bitterness will mentally dominate you. It'll control and consume your thoughts. And just like kudzu, it'll eat up more and more of your mind, more and more of your soul. Let me prove it to some of you. Because for some of you, the minute I said bitterness at the outset of this message, you immediately, there was a face. And you can't get that face out of your mind right now, can you? There was a circumstance. There was something. There was somebody you remembered. A time when you got the short end of the stick. A time that somebody mistreated you. And you have probably even found it difficult since that point in the message to listen to anything else I say. You, you find it very hard to concentrate because you're so consumed with that person or that situation. The great Ralph Waldo Emerson quoted once a 7th century Eastern poet, and he said the following, he who had a, has a thousand friends has not a friend to spare, but he who has one enemy shall meet him everywhere. Does that sound familiar to some of you? Everywhere I go, I'm reminded of that thing. I'm reminded of that person. That's what we say when we say, what we mean when we say bitterness will mentally dominate you. Furthermore, it will emotionally devastate you. One of the things I've discovered is you, you will never find a person who allows bitterness to take root in their soul who's genuinely happy. They might be able to be funny. They might be able to project a smile on occasion. But when you get into deeper conversation with them, they always go to that same place. They always go to that same person. They're always refusing to let go of something. It's one of the, re one of the ways you know that bitterness has taken root. It's a depressant. It might even cause you to bring unintended harm to yourself. Someone once said, intentionally staying bitter is like you drinking antifreeze and waiting on the other person to die. That's what it is. And the only person you're hurting in that event is yourself. Now, that bitterness will emotionally devastate you. It'll mentally dominate you. Thirdly, it can, and I've seen it often does, physically debilitate you. There is no heavier load that you will carry in this life than bitterness. God did not design the human body physically to emotionally carry a grudge. 
That's not the way he designed us. Now, that doesn't mean that every sick person or every emotionally disturbed person or even every mentally occupied person, maybe it's just ADHD, is bitter. What it does mean is that you and I need to understand where bitterness, if it's left unchecked, is going to lead us. Deal with the source of your bitterness. Determine and be warned about the course of your bitterness. That then will give you the motivation you need to defeat the force of your bitterness. And you do that by the instructions of God's Word in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is how you eliminate bitterness from your soul, from your life. Why do we go to the bathroom? It's Look, I love potty humor, but it's not just for the potty humor, is it? There's some serious implications for not going to the bathroom. It's because there's toxins in your body. And on occasion, they have to be purged. They got to get them out of there or you will die. This is why kidneys, bowels, the colon are such vital organs, even though you can't see them. And spiritually, the same thing is true. You've got to get rid of toxins. In Acts chapter 8, we, we see the reference to the poison of bitterness. And here's the thing. Some people don't want to get rid of it. You ever notice that? Some people like being bitter. Like that great theologian, Oscar the Grouch. Come on, everybody remember Sesame Street? You remember what Oscar Grouch used to say? I don't like, I like being miserable, it makes me happy. But I don't like being happy, that makes me miserable. That's, that's bitterness. That's bitterness, verbally expressed. You enjoy it. You, you just, you love focusing all your attention on that injustice or that person or that circumstance and maybe even doing all kinds of horrible things or saying things that you never really got to say before, but you keep replaying that tape in your mind, well, I would have said this or I would have said that. And if you've determined that that's how you're going to live, I love you, but I can't help you. I can't help you. And until you change, there's no hope for you. None. If you want to defeat bitterness, you're going to have to come to this conclusion. The only person I'm hurting by doing this is myself. I'm just hurting myself. Again, sometimes, I think this bears repeating, a serious injustice has taken place. And justice in that moment is not mutually exclusive from forgiveness. It's not. You can forgive an abusive spouse and refuse to live under that abuse anymore. You can do that. And I've told a number of women that truth. Apparently, there's some pastors who don't get that. You don't have to live under that. You can forgive somebody who sexually assaults you while at the same time having everybody from, the lo from local law enforcement to a good attorney to your pastor stand beside you as those individuals are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Justice is not mutually exclusive from what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about refusing to seek justice. I'm talking about what happens to you internally. Okay, Forgiveness doesn't cancel the necessity of justice for the perpetrator, but you know what it will do? It contributes to the healing of the victim. So if you're that person, this is the call of God. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And as if that's not clear, Paul now defines what he means by this. As God in Christ forgave you. So put it away. Like a flood sweeps away a bridge. Benjamin Franklin once said, doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenging one makes you even with him. But forgetting it puts you above him. Put it away. Secondly, forgive one another. Not mutually exclusive from justice, but what it does mean is you let go of that personal animus. You say, look, you, you may have what's coming to you for what you did to me. It's not, about, it's not about taking away justice, but here's the thing. I am mentally and spiritually going to let this go for my own peace of mind. I'm going to put my trust, hopefully, hadn't always worked, and we've seen ample ungodly evidence of that even in churches where things like this have not been dealt with. So we really shouldn't blame people if they've been subjected to legitimate injustices, especially horrible abuse, and they don't trust the church to handle it. But hopefully we'll get to a place, by God's grace, especially here, where we've already designed a culture around godly response to abuse in the Christian environment, where we deal with these things on behalf of the victim. But you're trusting those things, and even if not them, ultimately God, to take care of the punishment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Whatever you've conjured up in your mind needs to happen to that person, I can assure you, it is nothing compared to the wrath of Almighty God. Let it go for your own peace of mind. And number three, pursue peace, as the author of Hebrews says, means aggressively go after this. You take the initiative to end the war. Now, why, why is this important? Because as I think about what Scripture teaches us about this particular emotion, I come to this conclusion. Of all of the feelings that we fight as human beings, of all the feelings that we seek to control under the Lordship of Jesus, none feel as acutely on the inside like hell on the outside as much as bitterness. And there's a reason for that. It's because hell itself is a bitter place, an eternally bitter place, full of bitter people. If you're living enslaved to this, you're experiencing right now just a small fraction of a foretaste of what hell is going to be like. But here's the great news that we find, not only in Hebrews, but right here in Ephesians. You don't have to die in bitterness. And you don't have to live right now with bitterness. How do I know this? Because if God Almighty has not burned every single one of us to a crisp at this point, I mean damn the whole lot of us as we deserved, but has forgiven us in the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if Christ has forgiven you, if he's forgiven me, and if he has given us the presence of his Holy Spirit, as Scripture promises, exists in my soul right now, you know what he's given me, what he's given you? 
in that same Holy Spirit, he's given us the power to demonstrate that very same undeserved grace that he showed to us. Our world needs a whole lot more of that right now, don't you think? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a good and a gracious God. And we ask you now in the name of Jesus to grant us the ability to show others Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.